Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, a space for ongoing dialogue among Asian American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists. Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. David Chow. I'm very happy to host this evening's Asian American Theology and Ministry Colloquium, co-sponsored by the Center for Asian American Christianity, which I direct, along with the Asian Association of Princeton Theological Seminary, a student group. The Asian American Theology and Ministry Colloquium provides students with a forum for dialogue, support, and critical reflection on ministry by Asian Americans, especially in Asian American ecclesial contexts. And just a, a note for your calendar, please save the date from November 16th for our colloquium titled Freedom, a conversation about incarceration and being Asian. And this is um, a presentation with Diane Ujia and Billy Tang, who are co-directors of API Rise. Now I wanna turn our attention and introduce our speaker for this evening, welcome. We have students gathered here on campus at Princeton Theological Seminary. And we have several, um, about 30 or so, gathered, gathered online through the virtual AirMeet platform. Uh, Dr. Carrie Myers, uh, with a PhD in English and American Literature from New York University, Dr. Myers has worked on the faculties of NYU, Barnard College, Hunter College, and City Seminary of New York. She trained in both spiritual direction and Ignatian accompaniment at the School of Sustainable Faith and holds certificates in urban ministry and arts ministry. She is a spiritual director and worship leader at Vineyard One, New York City, a small church whose mission is to creatively carry out, carry out the work of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. She and Ryan, Vineyard One's pastor, have been married for over 20 years and have three children. Carrie is also a co-founder of the Stillness Collective, a group of spiritual directors who help busy people create space for stillness, solitude, and renewal. As a spiritual director, she finds joy and purpose in helping others experience God's presence, leading, and love in their everyday lives. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Carrie Myers. Thank you, David. And thank you to everyone who is here at Princeton and to everyone who is here online. I'm really excited to be here with you and to share some thoughts on Asian American spiritual formation and the stages of faith. So I'm just gonna give you a quick outline of where we're gonna go in the next 90 minutes. I'm gonna tell you a little bit about myself and about my formation as an Asian American and a Christian. And then I'm gonna give the overview of the stages of faith, which is a model of spiritual formation that I found extremely helpful as a spiritual director and as a ministry leader, and which I hope will be helpful to you too. And then I'm gonna briefly go over some spiritual formation modalities that I believe in, such as spiritual direction, contemplative prayer practices, and Ignatian spirituality. And I'll also talk a little bit about how each of these three ways of growing in faith intersect with social justice. And then what I'm really excited about is I would like to lead us through a contemplative prayer experience because I want us to not just learn about God, but experience God. And so I'm going to lead us through a prayer that invites us to use our imagination and our senses at the very end. And then we'll move to Q&A. So my goal this evening is to introduce you to the stages of faith and to modes of spiritual formation and prayer that will help you grow in your own faith journey and will also help you grow as ministers and leaders. And it's also my hope that you'll experience Jesus in a powerful way through our prayer time. 
So I'm actually going to open us up with a moment of prayer, if that's okay. So I'm in, a, I'm in the vineyard. If you know anything about the vineyard, you know we always start our meetings and our prayers by saying, Holy Spirit, come. So I'm going to say, Holy Spirit, come. God, please come with us today. Thank you for being here. God, I pray that whatever we have to learn from you today, we will be open to learning. And so, God, I know it is your desire that we grow, that we help others grow, that we fully embody you in our lives and our ministries. And so I pray that you will help us tonight to do that. In your name, amen. So I'm going to start by just telling you a little bit about my family. So this is one of my grandparents. This is my maternal grandparent. This is him and the plantation in Hawaii that he worked in and that my, parent, my mother grew up on. It's called the Grove Farm um, Plantation, and it's a sugarcane plantation. He met his wife from Japan there. He was from the Philippines, and they raised their five children there, including my mother. My father's side also um, was part of a sugar, flam, sugar plantation, but they were on the island of Hawaii. So I have these two parents that were both immersed um, in sugar plantation life and the sort of pan-Asian flourishing that happened there. And my grandfather's job, um, I love this picture of him. So his job was to operate the train that transported sugarcane from the fields to the factory. And when the plantation ceased to operate in 1974 and became a museum, my father just, or my grandfather kept on operating that train, except this time it was for school children on tours. And so he would take the train down a short track, they would go forward, they would go back, he would blow the whistle, done. Um, and riding that train with him is just one of my favorite childhood memories. Um, I don't know how much you know about Hawaii, but it's a very unique culture. Um, today it's majority Asian, white, and then white, and then Native Hawaiians are in the minority, and then there's a small percentage of Latinos or Hispanics. So there's a long story there. It's, um, there's colonialism, um, there's white owners who came in to start these plantations, pitting different ethnic groups against each other so they could get the cheapest labor. Um, they forcibly deposed the native Hawaiian kings and queens. It's a story that's long and complicated and it definitely troubles Hawaii's image as an island paradise. Um, I'm not gonna get into that now, um, but I will say that my parents and aunts and uncles all remember a hard but happy life um, they grew up in this thriving Pan-Asian culture. It's still part of their lives today. So this is the house my mother grew up in on the Grove Farm Plantation. This is a sort of romanticized version of it. I don't know. It looks very, very pretty. In pictures, it doesn't look so pretty. Um, but it's basically a faithful rendition. You can't see the outhouse. That's about it. But it's a very rudimentary house, right? You can see the tin roof, the shack, the wooden pole, you know, the wooden framework. Uh, my mother actually remembers that um, she didn't have indoor toilets until she left for college and came back. Um, my parents, the next generation, met in Southern California, where I grew up, on a blind date. My mom had become a Christian through the Salvation Army, which ran a camp on Kauai. My dad, when they met, was still a Buddhist, so my mother missionary dated him. I don't, you're familiar with that? If you don't know it, it's evangelical for bringing your boyfriend to Jesus. <laughs> and it worked, right? <laughs> Um, I don't necessarily recommend it for everyone, but in this case, it was successful. So my sister and I, we were in church as soon as we were born. We were raised in the Nazarene church. And in our case, it was a majority white, minority, Hispanic church that reflected the neighborhood that we grew up in. So we really did not grow up in an Asian context. We had a few scattered family members. Um, you could go to the Asian neighborhoods, but it wasn't necessarily part of a regular experience. And I think that's part of why my parents were sort of like, half tiger parents, you know, like if a tiger parent is here, my parents may be like here, right? And I, I think because they grew up in Hawaii, 
um, there's just a different value system there. People identify themselves much more strongly with their family, um, with their traditions than they do with their careers or education. When you go to Hawaii, you never know what anyone's job is. They just don't ask you. Um, so my parents, I mean, they did things that were typically Asian, right? They made me study hard. They made me take piano lessons. But they didn't seem to know that if you're Asian, you were supposed to go to Ivy or bust. Like, that just wasn't part of their framework. So, in fact, there's, there was so not Asian in some ways that when I decided in high school that I wanted to be a doctor, my mother talked me out of it, right? <laughs> That's not something you hear very often, I don't think. Um, so as an adult, I came to New York City. I did get a doctorate, which is very Asian, but I got it in English and American literature, which is not very Asian, right? Um, and then I worked at a seminary where I encountered spiritual direction, and I eventually trained to become a director myself. And I learned to love contemplative practices, and those have become central to my spiritual formation and my growth as a ministry leader. Currently, as David mentioned, I minister alongside my husband, Ryan. Who's there? Hello, Ryan. He's the senior pastor of a small vineyard church in Staten Island. So the next photo, if I can figure out how to bring it up. Thank you. This is my family, all right? Husband Ryan in the back with the cool sunglasses, my three kids. Now, if you look at those three kids, do they look Asian to you? Because they look Asian to me, but no one else seems to believe that they're Asian unless they see me. None of my kids' friends believe they're Asian at all. They think they're Russian or Hawaiian, or maybe Hispanic. They're just not sure. <laughs> um, and so sometimes I feel a little bit sad about that. Like, I want them to look Asian. Um, but in the past couple of years, I think I've also sometimes felt a little relieved that they don't look Asian, because it means that they'll be safer. Right? And that's a really heavy feeling, and I'm not proud of it, and I don't know what to do with it. But I think that's the reality of you know, the times we live in. So I share my story with you because I think you'll be able to identify with it in many places. Maybe not in all, but some. And I also think my journey is going to provide you with some insight into how I experience God and my own identity and formation as an Asian American woman. So on to the stages of faith. Thank you. So the stages of faith are a spiritual formation model from a book called The Critical Journey, Stages in the Life of Faith by Janet Hagberg and Bob Gerlich. Um, this book has been used by Fuller and Bethel Seminaries, and it was part of my training as a spiritual director. And I think that it has also worked in, in my experience, in the experience of other people, in diverse contexts with diverse leaders. It's not the only model of faith out there. Um, if you're familiar with psychology, you probably know James Fowler's model of spiritual development, which is not specifically Christian. Um, Elizabeth Liebert, who is a spiritual director, has another model that's only three stages. Ours is today's six stages. Um, and that model has also been adapted for the LGBTQ plus community um, by James Emperor. But the model that we're looking at today is particularly useful because it shows you how you grow from one stage to the next. Um, and then also how you can get stuck or caged in your faith journey. And it shows us how churches and spiritual leaders can both nurture and interfere with growth. And there's nothing in this model that is particularly inherent to the Asian American community. But I think as we go through it, we'll be able to see how this model can map onto some things that we're familiar with that our own identity and spirituality. A couple of prefaces to get us started. So as you can see in the chart, a um, couple different colors. The first bottom stages here, stage one through three, these represent sort of outward moves of faith. They have to do with behavior and external standards. In the first three stages, we're learning how to be good Christians according to the standards of our faith community, our culture, our parents, our denomination. 
Stages four to six are concerned with inward movement. These are the stages where transformation happen and also inner healing and our experience and definitions of God stretch and deepen. In terms of moving through the stages, um, it doesn't always have to be a sort of straight and complicated line. Um, people can move back and forth in the stages, but always in order. So for instance, you could be in stage four and then go back a little bit to stage three, but you can't jump from stage one all the way to stage five, right? You have to go in order. Um, and then you can also be in one, more than one stage at a time, particularly if you're transitioning between a stage. So you could be at some point in your life kind of stage two and kind of stage three. But again, you couldn't be in stage one and stage four at the same time. So once you've passed through stage, there are sort of gifts and learnings at every stage. And once you've passed through, those gifts are yours for your lifetime. You don't lose them when you go to the next stage, um, even though only one stage is your kind of home stage. And finally, if you're in an earlier stage, it's very, very hard to understand anything that happens in stage four and above. And we're going to talk about why that is. So we're gonna, I'm going to break down the slide, the stages for you really quickly. We're going to kind of zoom through one through three, and I'm going to pause a little bit at stage four because that's where things get a little bit hairy. Okay, so as you can see, each stage of faith um, has sort of a blurb about what faith is at the stage. It has traits at the stage, it has how we move to the next stage, and it has how we get caged or stuck. So in stage one, for instance, stage one is recognition of God or coming to believe in God. So I don't know if you remember what it was like when you were a new Christian. You probably experienced feelings like awe and wonder, and it was so exciting to get to know Jesus. You have this new sense of meaning in your life, and you have joy in being forgiven. But at that place, you also need someone to show you your way forward. You need a place that can nurture you in your newfound faith. How do we get stuck in stage one? We get caged here if we decide we're going to just wallow in how worthless we feel, like if we don't let Jesus transform those feelings. Or we can decide that we actually don't want to know anything more. We're just sort of happy with the beginning stages of faith that we're in. But we grow when someone we trust shows us the way forward and invites us to belong. So a scriptural example there is the woman with the issue of blood in the New Testament. Jesus forgives her, he heals her, and he gives her a way to join in her community. Moving on to stage two. Stage two is the life of discipleship. This is the stage where you learn about God, a stage of belonging. So imagine the same new Christian has now found her tribe. She has a church. She has a small group. She trusts her pastor. Here, she feels spiritual power through association with people and the beliefs that she's bought into. So if you think of um, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament or tribes like the Pharisees or sort of sects like the Pharisees or the Essenes, these are groups that have clear identities, they have histories and cultures. And at stage two, that's what you're looking for. At this stage, we get stuck if we don't actually settle into one community. We keep drifting, we keep searching, we don't commit. Um, I think a lot of stage one or two people are kind of these searchers and drifters who don't want external boundaries and they don't want to move beyond intuition to knowledge. They just kind of want to float, right? Um, the other way that you get stuck in stage two is if you take your identity and you choose tribalism and you turn it into a me against them mentality. Um, most people in most churches, according to the authors of this book, are actually, or sorry, most people in most churches are in stage two. And I'm gonna think about that for a while, right? So most people 
in churches in America have found their tribe, they found their community, and they kind of stay there, right? And so I think when we think about the reasons that people get stuck in stage two, and we think about tribalism, and we think about me and them, and then we think about what's going on in the evangelical community, some bells might go off, right? Some whistles, right? What's going on in the evangelical church right now? It's rigid. It's self-righteous. Um, it's all tribalism. It's all xenophobia. It's white nationalism, conspiracy theories, QAnon, right? All these things. Um, I don't want to say this is gospel truth. This is something that I suspect, right? Um, and I'm not sure exactly what to do with it in practice. I have a few sort of general ideas. Because the good news is that we don't have to stay stuck there, right? It is possible to grow past the stage. And how? In stage two, we grow when we're able to identify and use our gifts. So we feel set apart for the work of the Holy Spirit, not necessarily set apart from those people over there, right? So if you think of Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journeys, they felt chosen. They had a way to use their gifts. And so, again, I'm not an expert in this, but I want us to imagine what would happen if white evangelicals stopped worrying about being under threat by the other and instead focused on using their gifts to serve others? What would that be like? And what would it be like if all of us in every church and every faith tradition did the same? How would the church be different? With that question, I'm going to move us on to stage three. Stage three, as you may have been able to tell just from the way we've talked, is the productive life. We're moving from learning about God to doing things for God. So here, we recognize our uniqueness and giftedness. We begin to find ways to serve, whether it's at work or home or church. And we find power by performing and achieving. We start to grow into the next stage when we begin to sense cracks in what we've built so far. We get disappointed in a leader. We have a crisis. We move from certainty to doubt. We get stuck at this stage if we get tired of doing or if we begin to idolize our own busyness or if we find there's nothing to life except performance. And again, most people in churches are in stage two, um, but in general, most people in churches are in stage one to three and they don't get past this. So I'm going to think a little bit about Asian Americans in stage three. Um, I think American churches in general are really good at getting people here, obviously, because that's where everyone is, right? Um, stage three and one, one through three are orderly, right? You know how to do this. We give people some knowledge. We get them settled in the church. We identify their gifts. We make them work as ushers and greeters, right? Um, we know how to do this. It's simple. And as Asian Americans, I actually think this is really simple for us. Like, this isn't a generalization, of course, but we know how to do things, right? We're overachievers, right? We know how to get things done. We are raised to know our gifts. We're raised to excel at using them. Like, if you're an Asian American, you are leading those Bible studies in youth groups, right? Right? Like, you are organizing those mission strips. You are directing that choir. You are leading the worship team. You are in seminary. <laughs> Am I right? So, why do most churches and people stall out at stage three? It's because stage four is messy. It's where our life of faith becomes very personal and very mysterious. 
It's hard to plan a program of classes to manage it or have a pipeline of leaders to flow through it. Um, another reason is many of our own leaders haven't navigated stage four on their own yet. And so they don't know what it looks like. And if you don't know what it looks like and you haven't been there yourself, how do you get people to go there? Let's talk about stage four a little bit more. So remember, stage one to stage three, journey outward, external, behavior focused. Stage four is where the journey inward starts. This is a place where our old ways of relating to God, ourselves, and others stop working, and we need to find a new way. To someone in an earlier stage, stage four can look a lot like losing faith. It cannot make sense. But in fact, it actually holds the potential for a fuller and more complex faith. Most of us don't get to stage four because we feel like it. We get there because of a crisis. In our life and our faith, there's some form of suffering that destabilizes us and our identity. It reminds me of the first line of the Divine Comedy, where Dante writes, in the middle of the journey of our life, I came upon a dark woods where the way was lost. So if you imagine someone wandering in a wood without a clear path forward, you'll get a sense of what stage four is like. There's searching, frustration, ambiguity, uncertainty. But the value in the stage is because we don't know where we are or what to do. We find ourselves being with God instead of doing for God. We stop performing and we let God out of the nice, neat box that we've had him in. Often, stage four corresponds with what Richard Rohr calls the second stage of life. That point in your 40s or beyond when all of a sudden, the dysfunctions and the coping strategies that have actually gotten you this far, they worked really well for you in your 20s and 30s, um, they don't work for you anymore. So suddenly, all those childhood wounds, all those unresolved hurts and angers, all those addictions, all those things you've been covering up with your performance, you can't really ignore them anymore. They come to a place where you have to deal with them. Um, and it doesn't have to happen in your 40s. For some people, again, it's a crisis of faith, a crisis of life that can happen much younger. So for me, the thing that propelled me into stage four was a devastating ministry failure. Um, I was part of something that had felt like God had ordained it, that it would be part of my future, and it fell apart spectacularly. It was extremely painful. It was extremely ugly. It led me to question my choices, my trust in God's leading, and my future. Let's imagine another Asian American experience. So I've imagined this businessman called Ron. Why Ron? I don't know. <laughs> so Ron has a good marriage. He has kids. They're growing up, and they're on their way to elite colleges and professions. He's financially well off. He's respected in church. And he always thought that God wanted those things with him, that those were a form of blessing. But suddenly, he feels empty and weary. Did Jesus really die so his kids could get 1590s on their SATs? And what's their life going to be like? Is it just going to be repeating the cycle of perfectionism and never doing or being enough? He begins to wonder about how his beliefs have boxed God in, made God smaller than he really is. And he wonders about his own life of faith. Has his life been, as Richard Ward puts it, Nothing more than a personal holiness project? Is that all there is to Jesus? Ron might begin to wonder how much of his Christianity is based on Asian American culture, 
And how much is based on the cross? Somewhere at the end of stage four, Ron's questions and searchings are gonna be unignorable. And they're gonna run them smack into this place, place that we call the wall. The wall is exactly what it sounds like. It is a hard stopping point. This is the place where you and God get serious with each other. Your will and God's will come up against each other and something is gonna give. Either you surrender your ego to God and you get to move forward and find a deeper life of faith or you pull in and you cling to your ego and you cling to your rules and you cling to your preconceptions and you stay caged in stage four. Or, and this happens a lot, you might walk away from faith altogether. To get through the wall, the real you needs to meet the real God. And that is scary. And it also takes time and solitude and discernment. It's not something you can rush your way through. But if you do get past it, you will find a loving God. And you will realize that his love is not dependent on what you do or what you don't do. You will stop trying to earn love. And you'll accept it as a freely given gift. Your defenses will come down. You'll find forgiveness and reconciliation for wounds. You'll move towards your true calling and your purpose. This is the kind of transformation that David Benner says comes from what he calls contemplative knowing. Not just intellectual knowledge, not just head knowledge of the rules or the Bible, or of how to pray, but a deep, undeniable experience of God's unconditional love, which is deep down what we're all looking for. So let's talk about how we get stuck at the wall. You get stuck at the wall if you say to your ego, I like you better than God. <laughs> if you're unable to let go of your ego, if you're unable to accept that God's love for us isn't earned but comes unconditionally, if we're too attached to having the right answers. And that last feature right there, that's why a lot of our faith leaders get stuck at the wall because they can't admit they don't know everything. It's too hard on our self-image, right? We like being the people with answers. And so we stick to that. Now let's imagine as ministry leaders, how do we help people navigate stage four? I think there's a couple ways. First, we just talk about it being there, right? We need to normalize doubt and pain and existential struggle as part of a healthy Christian experience. We need to be vulnerable with our own pain and failures. We need to tell young Christians that there's a dark wood out there and that someday they'll wander through it, but that it will lead them to a deeper experience of God. And I think that's where the stages of faith is really valuable. For ourselves leaders, as leaders, I think we need to be okay with not knowing all the answers and not being able to fix things. Because when someone you know is in stage four, you can't problem solve it for it. You know, you can't muscle your way through stage four on someone's behalf. You have to wait it out with them. You have to be with them. And also, if you haven't been through stage four yourself, which it does not sound like is a problem for this room, sounds like we're all there, um, you need to at least intellectually understand what someone is going through. Even better, refer them to someone who has been through the wall, an elder Christian, a spiritual director, someone who's experienced that they can relate to. Okay, 
let's imagine all of us have navigated the wall. We are through. We have left our ego behind. We have chosen God. We are good. Let me go to the next slide. What does that look like? So both stage five, which we have here, and stage six are characterized by surrender to God. This is where you move beyond chartered paths. At both stages, people in earlier stages may experience you as that like weird person over there, right? You're going to look impractical. You're going to seem like you're wasting your life. You're wasting your talents. But what you experience as a stage five person is this deep sense of peace and intimacy with God and an abiding sense of your calling and vocation. You know what you're for. You know who you're for. And that sense of calling shows it in compassionate, self-serving, self-giving service to others. So the biblical example here is Hannah, Samuel's mother. So she pledges Samuel to the temple. She drops him off. This is an incredible gift to God. But she doesn't stop being his mother. She simply lives out her motherhood in a different way. And in the same way, when you or I get to stage five, we're still going to be Asian American. We're still going to have all those gifts that we accumulated in stages one through three and four. We'll just be Asian American Christians who have unboxed God and surrendered our will to him. So let's go back to Ron, who we met in stage four. In stage five, he's still going to be a successful businessman. He's still going to be a church leader. Those things don't get taken away from him. But his motives for his actions will change. He's going to stop striving and feel like he can never achieve enough. He might decide he doesn't need a bigger house to retire in. He might downsize and live more simply and use the extra money to support a shelter in his neighborhood. He might allow his oldest child to pursue her dream of being a rock musician instead of being an accountant because he now measures success differently. Maybe that's a stretch. I don't know. You tell me. Or maybe when his younger child earns only a B plus in calculus, that will be okay because he understands that we don't earn God's love with our actions or achievements. How does this sound to you? Does it sound like something you would like for yourself? So in stage five, you are almost fully surrendered to God, but there are still parts of you held back. In stage six, however, you experience what Ignatius of Loyola calls inner freedom. Inner freedom is a state of being so surrendered to God, so certain of his love and purpose, that you can say from your heart, I want and choose only what leads to God's deepening life in me. This is the stage where God's desires become our desires. And of course, Jesus is the exemplar of stage six faith. As Mark 10, 45 says, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And here I should just say that these biblical examples are all from the book. They are not out of my head. Um, if you read the book, you will find examples of faith, um, stories in the Bible at every stage. And so I want to say this again, because I think it's really important. As individuals, no matter what stage we're at, we still retain the gifts of the earlier stages. So when you get to stage six, you'll still remember the awe and wonder of discovering God or the satisfaction of meeting a spiritual goal in stage two. And we need all these stages in the church with all their different characteristics and giftings. So we need new Christians to remind us what childlike faith is. And we need those stage Christians to go on those mission trips and organize those potlucks. We need stage four Christians to remind us that faith is a mystery. And stage five and six Christians to show us holy surrender and loving service. That is the church in its fullness. And that's what we want. 
And so when we know these stages, it helps us because if we're in early stages, we know what comes after. So people in stages five and six don't seem so crazy and out of touch. And for those in later stages, it helps to be reminded that those in earlier stages, we're not supposed to judge them for their simplicity or their immaturity. You have perspective on your journey. You have perspective on where you've been. For ministers, I think perspective on our journey is what gives us compassion for others. We remember being there. And it also gives us a holy imagination for what people can be, for what we ourselves can be, and for what the church can be. And so I want to invite us into that holy imagination, what we can be, what the people we serve can be, and what the church as a whole can be. So that's the stages of faith. I hope that's been helpful. I want to move now to talking about some specific ways that we can support spiritual growth and formation. So first, as a general principle, um, in stages of faith, Heiberg and Gerlich say that at every stage, a way to grow is simply to ask God, God, what do you want me to learn? Be curious about what God is doing. Ask him. Have a conversation. That will help you no matter where you are, especially at the wall. But for me, I actually want to talk about the role of a spiritual director in spiritual growth. When I trained as a spiritual director, it felt to me like the thing that I was made for. And I think for all of us, there is that place, right, where we feel that we've come home. We feel like we've come home to ourselves. We feel like we've come home to God. And so that's what I love about offering spiritual direction to other people. <clears throat> In some mysterious way, it feels like I can help them come home to themselves and to God and to their callings, whatever their callings might be. Um, that's all a bit mystical and up in the air. My husband tells me I need to be more concrete. <laughs> so I'm going to try to explain what a spiritual director actually does, because actually it's kind of hard to talk about. The simplest way to say it is that just as a mentor helps you grow in your career or a coach helps you grow in your sports ability, a spiritual director helps you grow in your spiritual life. So how do I do this as a director? First, I sit down with you one-on-one. -on -one. I offer you focused time. I invite you to talk about anything that's important to you. Your emotions, your hopes, your desires, your disappointments, whatever is going on in your life. And as you talk, I listen. I listen to you. I also listen to the Holy Spirit. I ask gentle questions to help you reflect more deeply on your experience and notice what God is doing in your life. I'm going to ask you questions like, what gifts is God giving you? What does God love about you? What is God asking you to learn or do? Where are you finding life and excitement and hope and joy? And how can you get more of those things? Sometimes, often, I may ask you to sit in silence so that you can listen to God or just be with Jesus without having to do anything at all. I find that Today, very few of us have people in our lives that will create these places for communion with God and will listen to us the way a spiritual director will, patiently, non-judgmentally, with an ear for what God is doing. That's the first gift of spiritual direction. A second gift is that a spiritual director can help you explore contemplative prayer. Um, these have been transformational in my life. Many kinds of contemplative prayers, guided meditations, prayer using your senses, lectio divina, breath prayer, centering prayer. What they all have in common is that they invite you to experience God, not just in your head, but in your whole self, your emotions, your imagination, your intuition, 
for your body. Contemplative prayers help you slow down, invite God in, and hear his still small voice. They're very countercultural in that way. Once you've had some experience with contemplative prayer practice, one, I think you'll be addicted. But two, a spiritual director can also begin to lead you through the spiritual exercises, which is a third gift of spiritual direction. The exercises were created by St. Ignatius of Loyola 500 years ago, and they've been helping people grow ever since, not just Catholics, but Protestants, people all over the Christendom. Through the exercises, we spend time immersed through prayer and scripture and God's love and in the life of Jesus. We grow in love of God, love of others, and inner freedom, that alignment of God's desires and our desires that we experience in stage five and six. The spiritual exercises, I think, are hands down the most effective spiritual formation tool that I know, particularly for people in stage four who are facing the wall. So if you meet someone in stage four and you don't know what to do with them, send them to a spiritual director and tell them to do the exercises. So spiritual direction, contemplative prayer practices, the exercises, these are all intertwined. They're all ways to foster experiential contemplative knowing of God, the kind of knowing that leads to transformation. But they're also deeply entwined by, with and informed by social justice. And I just want to say a few words by that and then I'll be done. So spiritual direction and contemplative prayer practices create space for each person to see themselves as, quote, the locus of God's actions. This is language from Elizabeth Liebert and Anne-Marie Pollen Campbell, who wrote a feminist approach to the Ignatian exercises. In spiritual direction, my bedrock premise that I start with is that God is with and within every single person. In that one-on-one -on -one space of spiritual direction or of contemplative prayer in a one-on-one -on -one encounter with God, no one's experience with God is more authentic or more important than yours. And the unique way that Christ is incarnated in you is recognized and honored and normalized. So if you're used to living on the fringes of the church, if you're an ethnic or sexual or another kind of minority, and you don't feel like the way that you live out, that you live as a child of God is recognized or honored, the space of direction can be profoundly healing and affirming. You get to sit before God and feel accepted just as you are and know God is within you, that God is moving in you, that your life is that locus of God's action. And Ignatian spirituality is also very concerned with social justice. It forms us for social justice because as we journey with Jesus, we can see that he lived his life in solidarity with the poor and the marginalized. You may have heard Pedro Arupe, whose words are that this is the preferential option for the poor. Dean Brackley, who writes about Ignatian spirituality, calls it a spirituality for solidarity with the poor, with the marginalized. And the other thing that's true about Ignatian spirituality and the later stages of faith is that you will likely find yourself called to some form of downward mobility. Fewer possessions, less money, less status. If you think about the life of Jesus, that downward mobility is something Jesus knew well, and he demonstrated in his own life. Jesus could have had a home. He could have had a career. He gave them up to walk with those who needed him. 
I think that is all that I wanted to say about the stages of faith and about spirituality. So my prayer for all of us today is that we as Asian American Christians will see God present at every stage in all of our life, all of our identity, all of our circumstances, that we'll be equipped for compassionate service and solidarity, and that we will continue to discern and use our unique callings and gifts for the sake of Christ's redemptive mission. And also, because I'm a spiritual director, I want to plug that. If you haven't tried it already, try it. Try spiritual direction. Learn about the Ignatian exercises, both for your own growth, and so you're better able to support others in their growth. We're going to have some time for discussion, for questions. Um, but before we do that, I actually want to um, invite you into a form of contemplative prayer called imaginative prayer. Are any of you in the room familiar with that? Okay, so this will be first. Great. So in imaginative prayer, <clears throat> we enter into a scene of scripture using our five senses. So we let the scene come to life around us. So imagine placing yourself in the story of scripture. And this can be a very powerful way to experience Jesus. I'll guide you through the steps, so don't worry about it, um, if you're, that you're not familiar. And I also just want to add the caveat. Some, in some traditions, we learn that imagination is not to be trusted, but it's actually to be feared. Um, but I want to encourage you that imaginative prayer has been practiced for centuries. There's a long and healthy tradition of it. So we're going to spend about 15 minutes. I'm going to play some ambient music. My friend David Bucks is the composer. He actually writes music specifically for contemplative prayers. So we're going to be blessed with that. <clears throat> and I will walk you through. So I'm going to just say... Wherever you are, online space, if you're at home, if you're in your office, here in this room, go ahead and get settled. Do whatever you need to to be able to relax for the next 15 minutes. So if you need to put down your bag, <clears throat> if you need to change positions, if you want to go stand in the back of the room or sit on the floor, do whatever you need to do to get comfortable. And then the imaginative prayer that I'm going to guide you through is from John 13. And it's the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. If you're online, feel free to turn off your camera. body rise and fall as your breaths go in and out. As you breathe, notice what's going on inside of you. What are you feeling in your body? 
Notice places of weariness or tension, or health and ease. Notice what's going on in your emotions. How do you come to prayer today? Keep up your deep, slow breathing. With each breath, let more of the tension go. Each person here exactly the way we need to hear you. I will read the scripture passage twice. As I read it the first time, simply listen. whatever God wants you to notice. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave the world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You don't understand now what I am doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never wash my feet. Jesus replied, Unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done.
your strongest impression from this passage? Imagine now you are a part of the story. You can imagine yourself as one of the disciples, like Peter or Judas, or as Jesus, or as someone or something else in the room, even an object. Begin to use your senses to imagine the scene. Imagine what the room looks and feels like. Smell the food being prepared. Hear the sounds of the servants who are bringing a meal, dishes and utensils and food. You might feel your mouth water. Or you might notice the softness of cushions that support you as you recline on the floor. I'll read the passage a second time. This time, use your imagination to picture what is happening around you. Try to see it unfolding the way you would have filmed, using your senses to fill in details, colors, sights, sounds. Story in your imagination does not have to follow exactly what happens in scripture. It doesn't have to end. Trust God to guide you. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a the towel he had around him. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. It stood out to you this time through the story. Do you think God might be saying to you through your imagination? And how do you feel about it? Imagine that Jesus is going to wash your feet 
sit at the table and watch as Jesus takes off his robe, puts a towel around his waist, and kneels before you. Feel the water pouring over your feet, the gentleness of Jesus' touch, the roughness of the towel. What is it like to have Jesus wash your feet? Now imagine that along with your feet, Jesus is holding your entire life, your whole faith journey, all of your being. Which parts of your life does Jesus hold with the most care and the most tenderness? do you notice in you as he holds you? Jesus says, since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. What does that mean to you? Is there an action that Jesus is inviting you to take? you feel led to do so, tell Jesus that you will take this action with his help. Sit in silence with Jesus. Be whole. Enjoy his presence.
Jesus, thank you for this time of prayer. Thank you for teaching us to serve and be served out of your deep love for us. And I want to thank you all for trying this, for opening yourself up to encountering Jesus in any way. I pray that you will take this experience of being cleansed and ministered to by Jesus with you. May you have the opportunity to share his grace and love with others. Amen. We here at the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary invite you to join in the ongoing dialogue on Asian American faith, identity, social engagement, and ministry through our newsletter, blog, and upcoming conferences at ltiaa.com.